Hey, please grab a seat and we'll have our final reading for the morning. And uh, Sister Katie's going to read for us Philippians chapter 2. And if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And this is a passage we're going to be meditating on this morning, and so it's appropriate to seek the Lord for his blessing as we look at his word. So pray with me. Lord, again, we come to you in thankfulness, and we pray now that as we meditate on your word, that you would bless us and help us to understand what you are saying. Draw us closer to your through your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now you can see in this passage, uh, the Apostle Paul, which was uh, you know the authorized uh, spokesperson that the Lord Jesus wanted to carry his message to the world, he's looking back on Christmas, he's looking back on what happened there, and he's bringing out the fullness of what that means for us as human beings and for the church, for those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and who call on him. Now we see there, very interestingly, that the first half of the passage is practical instruction uh, to the Christian people. He's writing there to the believers in Philippi, saying that you ought to be humble, you ought to be uh, thinking about others and putting their interests above your own, you ought to be doing all of this in love and in humility. But notice what he does. He does all of that instruction, not in a vacuum. You know, sometimes as parents say to the kids, do it because I tell you so, because I said that. But actually, as we find all throughout Scripture, these instructions, these commands, are always based upon an objective truth. And Paul is teaching believers to live in such a way because, he says, think about the mind of Christ. Consider who the Lord Jesus Christ is. So we get in this passage, as he reflects on Christmas and the coming of the Lord Jesus into this world, he says we can learn about the mind of Christ Jesus through this event. And that's our, that's our interest this morning. What does Christmas teach us about the heart of Christ, about the heart of God? What can we learn about his mind and, and his attitude and his character? And there's some wonderful things that we get to learn. But really what I love about this is that when Paul says in verse 4, he says, let each of you look not only to your own interests, but to the interests of others. He's really saying to believers, do this 
because that's what the Lord Jesus Christ does. That's really what he's saying, right? This mind is yours in Christ Jesus. And I really wanted to base, you know, uh, the three points we're going to be meditating on from this passage on that idea. How does Christmas show us that the Lord Jesus Christ uh, in his coming to the world and his life and his death show us the, the um, you know, him looking not only to his own interests, but to the interests of the world? Well, first and foremost, we read of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was born, but he's not merely born as you and I were born. We are born as human beings, and he was born as a human being. But he existed before he was born. And we read that he was in the very form of God. He had equality with God. And that's Paul's attempt with human language to express the truth that Jesus Christ was not merely a human being, but he was in fact himself divine, of the same uh, essence and nature as God himself. And we find this explicitly stated in John chapter 1, that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And through the Word, all things were made. And then later on in verse 14 of John chapter 1, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So the Lord Jesus Christ, he is equal with God in every way, fully divine, and yet we read of this incredible fact, what Christmas Day tells us, is that he took on flesh. He took on human nature. It's just as Isaiah 9 promised us, that a child would be born, but of this child we can call him everlasting God, mighty God, everlasting Father. How can we call a man God? That, in fact, would be the height of blasphemy. And if the scriptures did not teach us so clearly that this is the identity of the Lord Jesus Christ, we wouldn't dare to call a man God. But that's what the Lord Jesus Christ spoke about constantly of himself. When he dealt with the Jewish leaders, we see in, in the Gospel of John, for example, in John chapter 8, he gives an incredible claim. They started talking about their forefathers, Abraham, this great patriarch. And Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. Claiming to exist and to, to be there, long before Abraham was. And in fact, that call of I am claiming to be self-existent. I am, I always was, because that's who God is. Now we read here that, that Jesus having the form and equality with God, he did not count it as something to grasp for himself. Now that is an example of looking to your own interests, right? You can then think of a person who has all the wealth in the world, all the prestige, all the fame, every power and authority at his fingertips. And let's say this wealthy person in this world, he uses all of that for his own interests. He counts it as something to be grasped, you know, to hold on to, to cling to fiercely for himself. He doesn't want to lose it and have somebody else come in possession of it. He's not willing to uh, have an open hand so that others might enjoy from his wealth and from his uh, power or authority or whatever else he may possess. But that's not what we read of the Lord Jesus. He did not count it as something to be grasped for himself. But rather, he looked to the interests of human beings in this world. Now, what is to the interest of human beings? What is to the interest of this world that does not know God naturally? It's to our interest that he take on our nature and enter this world. So many important reasons for that. And time fails us this morning to think about all the various reasons. But one thing I wanted us to think about as to why it's to our interests that, that God, the Son, Jesus, takes on human flesh. When you think about it in the context of this, Paul is saying, 
for believers to have this humble mind towards one another, to care for one another, to love one another, to have sympathy for one another. We read that, don't we? Of encouragement, comfort from love, participation in the Spirit, affection and sympathy. But have you thought about this? If God did not enter our world and take on human nature, could we really have confidence that God truly is sympathetic to us? That God truly could have empathy? Now we understand this concept of divine, of, of divinity of God. He is all-knowing. And yet we also understand there's a difference between somebody who knows theoretically and somebody who knows by experience. And when we, especially as human beings, go through times of difficulty, trial, suffering, one of the, the hardest things is to go through that difficulty all alone. You might feel it too when you speak to a loved one and you try to express to them what you're going through within and we find the limits of human understanding. They may theoretically, for example, have an understanding of whatever ailment you're suffering from, but they do not have perhaps that experience. They cannot say to you without lying, I know how that feels. They can't say that if they haven't themselves been through that trial. And we know how isolating that can feel as human beings. The sympathy from human to human can only go so far. And when we think about God and Him telling us that He loves us, we might well say, that's, that's wonderful, that's great, but, but how is this sympathy truly made perfect? How can we be sure that you understand what human beings really go through? We're lesser than ants to Him. He is divine, He is great, He is infinite. We are finite and limited. Well, we read here that the Lord Jesus Christ in taking on flesh, one major reason for that is so that He can be perfectly sympathetic to every sinner who draws near to him perfectly sympathetic to any and all human beings like you and i he had a true human nature the infinite became finite so that god who made all things experienced hunger thirst he knows what it's like to be tired and fatigued he had many all-nighters healing the sick and preaching the gospel he understands what it's like to suffer intense physical and mental and emotional agony. He was abandoned by his friends and disciples, left all alone. He was misunderstood, slandered by the public and by the leaders. He was persecuted. He was hated without a cause. He experienced the full gambit of human experience. And all of that, was so that when he comes to the world and opened his arms and invites the world to draw near to him, he does so with full sympathy. God can look at you in the eyes, metaphorically speaking, from his word and say to you in all honesty, whatever it is you are going through, whatever it is you will go through, I know how that feels. In fact, I had it worse than you. And I've come in great uh, combination of of all-knowingness, omniscience, and this experience. There is that perfect knowledge. He knows all things, and He has experienced it. He is a Savior who is able to perfectly sympathize with us as human beings. He knows the weakness of human nature. Now, Him taking on that human nature and living in this world in that way, is that not the greatest act of humility one can imagine? I mean, for God to become a man 
would be a greater distance than for you to become an ant. Because you and an ant, you're still, both of you are finite creatures of this world. But God is of a different category. He is infinite, creator. And yet he takes on creation and becomes man. Now that is such a great act of love. That is Christ looking not only to his own interest, you know, uh, separate and far away from the sufferings of this world. That is God entering into our, our sufferings and our pain and our world. That is him looking to our interests. But you know, even that, as amazing and wonderful as that is, is merely the start of the story. Because we read here in Philippians 2, Paul says, being found and born in the likeness of men, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's there in verse 8. You know, it reminds me of a very thought-provoking artwork. I wonder if it's still there in the art gallery. Um, in the Auckland Art Gallery, I think on the second floor, there's some paintings and things like that. And I came across a very provocative, uh, thought-provoking picture. I wonder if you've heard of it. It's a drawing of a cross and laid on the cross as a baby, crucified. Now, if you know anything about crucifixion, that's one of the most torturous ways to put someone to death. Not just the pain of the nails going through you know, the hands and the feet, but they're hung there until they essentially are so weak that they can't force themselves to, to prop up and breathe. They, they, they die in that horrible way after days of exhaustion and torture. And here was this drawing of a baby crucified on a cross. Now that really brings out to you the horribleness of death on a cross. But all the more so, it brings us to us the startling fact. The Lord Jesus was born into this world, not merely to share in our experience of difficulty and pain and suffering, all these human experiences, but he came ultimately to die in our place. He was born to die on the cross. That's what that painting was illustrating for us in such a provocative way, a baby crucified. His purpose in being born was to die this horrible death. Now, we have to ask here, how could this happen? The Bible clarifies for us, and the Bible testifies to us. And as we read about the words and actions of Christ, we see nothing but perfect love and compassion. We see nothing but this perfect adherence to the truth. The Lord Jesus Christ never did anything wrong. He could say to the crowds of the Jews who hated him, he says, what wrong, what sin do you convict me of? And the Jews had no answer. Nothing but blind hatred was all they had. There was no real crime that they could nail him to the wall with. They all had to make up slander against him, false charges. He himself was innocent. So why then was he condemned to die a criminal's death on the cross? The answer that the Bible gives us is so clear. Jesus himself gives that answer. He came to give his life as a ransom for many. He died not on the behalf of his own guilt and his own sin. He came to die for the guilt of his people. He came to give his life on behalf of others. He looked not only to his own interest, but he looked to the interest of this sinful world. He looked to your interest. This is why he came and died upon the cross. He went to the cross so that all of us, in all of our guilt, and all the ways we've not lived up to God's standards, your conscience will tell you all the various ways you have not loved God and not loved your neighbor as you should. All of the guilt of those things Christ died for. He came and he, he, he was born so that he might go to the cross to deal with our guilt. That guilt which separates us from God because God is righteous and fear. 
Now you see even further the great love and humility of Christ in that he was born to die for you. Now that is him indicating that he did it for the interests of his people, not only for his own. And then we read finally that death was not the end of the story. Christ dying for our sins was not the end of the narrative. God had other plans because we also read he has now been exalted. He has been raised from the grave. He is now seated at the right hand of God. And we might ask, okay, now the Lord Jesus Christ is exalted in glory. He has been risen from the grave. Death itself has been defeated. All the sins that he died for, God has declared that it was successful. The payment was accepted. And therefore, he, he vindicates his son by raising him from the dead. But the question is, how is that to my interest? Because he's up there, but I'm down here. Do you know the Lord Jesus Christ said to his disciples in John 14, just as he says to all of us through his word, I go to my father's side to prepare a place for you. There's this idea, he kind of says, my father's house has many rooms. Old translation says, my father's mansion. There's many rooms in God's house, infinite number of rooms, we might understand, because God himself is infinite. And you know what Jesus is indicating? If I could put it in this way, for all of his people, he goes there to be at God's side, to prepare a place for us in eternity. There's a room in God's house with your name on the door. And when you enter there into eternal bliss with your Savior, you will find everything all prepared and ready for you. There is no scrabbling. Oh, we didn't get your reservation at the hotel. I'm so sorry. There's no room for you at the end. That's what he experienced when he came into this world. But when we go to him, all of us who know him and trust in him, he says, I've gone to prepare a place for you. Enter into my joy. Enter into eternal bliss. It's to our benefit that he goes. But not only that, we read in Matthew 28 as he gives to his disciples the mission of the church to God and make disciples of all nations. He says first, all authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples. Why is it to our interest that the Lord Jesus Christ is now exalted? Because now in that glorious position where there is no other authority higher than him, the Lord Jesus Christ can absolutely carry out every one of his promises. He has now executive power over all creation. He is at the right hand of God. There is no higher position than to be at the right hand of God on high. There is no greater power or ruler in this world or in the spiritual world who could trump the power of Jesus. And therefore, because he is there, only then can we have confidence that is every promise that he has given in his word he will surely fulfill. When Jesus says, whoever draws near to my Father through trust in my name, I will ensure that they will have access. That's a promise you can, you can take to the bank to check. Because he bases that promise, not upon good intentions and well wishes, but upon the solid ground of his uh, position at the right hand of God. It is to our interest that he is there now because we can be absolutely confident. He not only has good will towards us, but he has the power to fulfill that good will. Now you think about a sympathetic friend in our world today. We understand how wonderful it is to have somebody who loves us enough to sit with us and to maybe listen to us and have sympathy expressed to us, love expressed to us. I, I'm so sorry you're going through this difficulty. I love you. I care for you. 
And yet at the same time, we understand that kind of sympathy and love has limits in its power. A person may say, I'm so sorry you're going through this, but I, I'm, I'm limited in what I can do to help you. I have not the resources. I have not the ability to deal with this problem. That is something which the Lord Jesus Christ will never, ever say to anybody who draws near to him. The Lord Jesus Christ can say perfectly because he was a man and he went to the cross for us. I sympathize with you perfectly. But he does not say, but I can't do anything about your problems. He will never say that. Even the great problem of your sin and guilt with God, he says, I can deal with it. I've dealt with it. And indeed, whatever else problems you may have, he will never say, that's too big for me. That's too grand for me. He is seated at the right hand of God. He is exalted as the name above every name. And therefore, the Lord Jesus Christ can say not only that he perfectly sympathizes with you. He knows you and your soul more than you know yourself. He loves you more dearly than you can imagine. And he can say, I can deal with every storm you are going through. Do not be afraid. Only believe. Trust in me. I will be there for you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. All of those promises in the Bible are absolutely meaningless if they were not founded upon the reality of the Lord Jesus Christ actually entering our world, actually going to the cross for our sins, and actually being risen from the dead to be seated at the right hand of God. But because all of these things are so, we see now on this Christmas day, we're reminded what a glorious and perfect Savior we have. He has addressed our every need. He gives to us all that we might dream of and more. He is a most perfect Savior, perfect in His love, perfect in His power and ability to deal with our great problems, perfect in His compassion and mercy and humility towards us. And He invites all the world, whoever thirsts, whoever labors, whoever is weary, come to me, draw near to me. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. And that really leaves us with the last question. Do you have a personal interest in the Lord Jesus Christ? Now, I use that word interest not as in a colloquial way. I'm interested. I'm curious. I use that word in a much more technical, legal sense. Do you have a stake in the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you have a portion in Him? Do you have a claim on Him? You know, that word interest, we can see it if you, for example, deal with uh, loans or mortgages. The bank says, we'll give you money, but the house that you're buying, we have a security interest in. What that means is, is that if you, if you default and that house gets sold, the bank gets first dibs. They have interest on the proceeds of that sale. The idea there is that they say, we have a claim upon your house because we're lending you the money. The idea there is that if you have a personal interest in something, it's something that you have a part and portion in. You have a claim in. This is your thing. You belong to it and it belongs to you. You're bound to it. You're united with this thing that you have an interest in. Now, we've heard this morning from the word about the Lord Jesus Christ objectively, who he is in his heart and in his mind and his attitude. But the question is, do you have a personal interest in him? Do you have a claim in him? Are you confident? That everything I've described about the Lord Jesus Christ belongs to you. Are you certain that his sympathy is yours? That his love is upon you personally? That you have a claim upon these uh, blessed promises that he gives 
to all the world. You can say these promises are addressed to me. I know I have a claim in them. The only way to be sure, as Jesus himself has said, the only way to be sure that you belong to him and he belongs to you is if you draw near to him and receive him with faith, with trust. That you receive him with this uh, um, heartfelt reception. That you will say to him, uh, you are my Lord. I will rest upon you. I will trust myself to you. Here is the free gift of God. You must receive it. That really is the pressing question. It does you no good, as our brother Dwayne so wonderfully brought out yesterday, to merely meditate and know in your mind the glories of Christ and how wonderfully he loves us if you don't know that love for yourself personally. My prayer is that every one of you would draw near to Christ this day, Christmas Day, spend time meditating on who he is and draw near to him in your heart. Come to this wonderful Savior and know him for yourself. Let's bow our heads and pray. Lord, we are so thankful again to you for your wonderful grace. And we thank you that this morning we could come together to sing songs of praise to you, which you so wonderfully deserve, to pray to you and seek your favor and to come under your word. We pray, Lord, that you would open our hearts to behold the Lord Jesus Christ in truth and in reality, all of his wonderful glories and love to us. And we pray that you'd give to us the faith and the submission to receive him so that we might know this blessedness, this joy, this love for ourselves. Help us, Lord, to see our need for this Savior. And uh, we pray, Lord, that you'd be doing this great work in all of our hearts this day. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.